baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. You are entering the news vault from KCBS Radio. Flames and the smoke. I have a tape recorder in my hand. Now, nobody would think of doing that. The newsmen were blocking the door. It worked for a couple of seconds. Bringing the sounds of history back to life. Here is your host, Stan Bunger. And this time on the News Vault, we bring you a name that uh, KCBS listeners heard for years, may have never met. She was not a star of the radio station in the on-air sense, but she certainly was a star behind the scenes. Her name was Jane Riley. Jane spent 30 years at KCBS. She was hired in 1971 for a secretarial job, spent many years as the administrative assistant to the station's vice president and general manager. She was indeed the classic gatekeeper, and I can say that on personal authority. If you wanted to see the boss, you had to get through Jane first, and it was never entirely clear who really was the boss. For 25, though, of the years that Jane Riley spent at KCBS, she produced and hosted a program she created. It was called simply Bay Area Woman. She figured she interviewed 2,000 women from all walks of life before she finally retired from KCBS at the age of 79. She recalled in a 2011 interview with the San Francisco Chronicle, and I'm quoting here, When I first started, women weren't allowed to be on the air, and by the time I left, the newsroom was practically filled with women. I wasn't afraid to push. I hoped I helped a little bit in breaking the glass ceiling. She did indeed. Jane Riley died in 2014 at the age of 89. In this episode, and frankly, finding these has not been easy, despite the fact we have many tapes of many programs, I can't believe that out of all of those 2,000 interviews that Jane Riley says she did, we're only able to find a few of the interviews. This particular one uh, came out in 2001 when Jane interviewed Janice Cook Newman, the author of The Russian Word for Snow, A True Story of Adoption. This is Jane Riley with Bay Area Woman, Janice Cook Newman, author of The Russian Word for Snow, A True Story of Adoption. You know, I usually do uh, public service announcements for adopts, adoption agencies in the Bay Area, and then in looking through your book, I thought it would be a good idea to get a perspective on what it feels like to be an adoptive parent. I mean, that's a whole new concept uh, for most of us, I think. Mm-hmm. We very often hear about it the other way, please adopt. So I thought maybe you should tell me a little bit about... uh, Now, I know you were unable to have children. That was a very long, heartbreaking experience for you, I'm sure. Um, So what made you then decide to adopt? Well, actually, my husband and I never decided to adopt. We were almost chosen, I guess, in a way. We had gone to an adoption meeting. And the only reason that we went to the meeting is that I had this theory in the back of my mind that if I went to an adoption meeting, I would get pregnant. You know the way you hear about people adopting and always getting pregnant. So I think that's what was in my mind when we went to the meeting. And we sat through this meeting, which actually was was kind of scary because the woman who ran it talked a lot about all the things that can go wrong with adoption. And she spoke about domestic adoption and birth mothers changing their mind and coming back to get custody of their children. And she spoke about international adoption and how 
you're very much at the whim of foreign governments where there may be a coup and they may suddenly put a moratorium on adoptions. And I remember leaning over to my husband and whispering in his ear saying, we will never have a child. And right before we left the meeting, the woman who ran it showed a videotape. And on the videotape, there were about 10 orphans, 10 little children who were in an orphanage in Moscow. And the last little boy on the tape was 10 months old. He was completely naked. He had these big eyes and this sort of wispy hair that stood up on the top of his head. He looked like a baby bird. And he was, he was there on this metal changing table. And next to him was a woman with a white lab coat, very stern-looking Russian woman with a babushka tied around her hair. She was trying to make him smile for the camera. And as my husband and I watched this tape, which couldn't have been more than two minutes, he stopped being an orphan in, in Russia and started to seem like our child. And watching it, we both just had this strong feeling. We both fell in love with him, just seeing him on that tape. And that was it. We just decided that night that this was supposed to be our child. You know, that's, that's so unusual. That's almost like serendipity. It is, and it was very unusual for us. We're sort of these cynical ex-New Yorkers who would never be saying something like that. But it's interesting, as I've gone through the process and also going on the book tour, meeting a lot of other adoptive parents, a lot of them have similar stories. They had these sort of gut feelings when they saw the picture or video of their child that this was the child they were meant to have. I think that's absolutely wonderful. But now, adopting is not for everybody, though, is it? Um, you do have to make a decision about doing it. For us, we had to decide to stop. We were going to go ahead with in vitro, and we actually canceled that and decided to go for adoption. And I think it sometimes for people it takes another step. You need to get used to it. I think in the past, certainly when I was growing up, adoption was much more hidden. You didn't know there's many people who were adopted, so you thought it was something kind of odd, something different. But now there are so many people who adopt. They say that 22 million Americans have either adopted, are adopted, or are in the process of it. So suddenly it doesn't seem so unusual, and it, it's an easier decision, I think, to make. Of course, once you make the decision, then it's not easy. You know, there are a lot of things that you have to do. It's expensive. And so it, it does become hard to adopt. Well, now, that was the next thing I was going to get into. You d describe the difficulties in your book. I mean, was there a major one, or are there numbers of them? Or ah, so many to count. <laughs> the details are... Uh, yeah, the, the paperwork in general is very difficult. Um, and I think that hasn't changed much, and that's similar for most people. There's a lot to do. With adoption, you sort of remake the decision to adopt every day because every day there's a new paper to be signed or notarized. Um, when you do an international adoption, you work through um, immigration, through the INS office, and they have a series of things that you need to do. You need things like your certified original of your birth certificate, which, of course, turns out to not be the paper you've been carrying around for 40 years. It's something completely different from the hospital. My husband and I, I recall, when we were in the process of doing our paperwork, we would get up at 6 a.m. to start calling these sort of hospitals and records offices on the East Coast to try and get these papers. And what we used to do is we had a little uh, Polaroid picture of our son from the videotape. We'd make color copies of it and send it in with our letters of request, hoping people would see this little face and hurry up with our papers. <laughs> so, of course, there's that end of, of things. And then for us, we also had the additional difficulty of going to Russia during the first democratic election. That's right. Over, you mean in Russia? Yes. And that probably stalled everything or held up everything. It was very And you had hard. to go to Russia. Yes, we had to go to Russia twice. The first trip that we made to Moscow, um, this, was, this has changed, but it may actually go back. There's word that it may go back to this. But 
you used to have to go and see your child first before you could even file the paperwork. So two weeks after we had originally seen that first videotape, we had to, we were on the plane to Moscow, and we got to that orphanage where they had shot the tape, and I remember pulling in, it was wintertime, and the orphanage had a big high wall around it, and there was a playground, a sort of ice-covered playground, and when we pulled up in the car, we got out of the car, my husband and I, these three- and four-year-old children who had been playing out in the playground came running across the snow with their arms out going, Mama, Papa. And it was just heartbreaking to see them. And they sort of whisked us away and brought us inside. And we sat in the room where the women who worked at the orphanage took their tea, waiting for them to bring us the little boy we had seen on the tape. And you had never seen him until then? We know. We had seen him two weeks before on the tape. He was 11 months old by this time. And I remember them bringing him in. And he actually looked like a paler version of the child whose image I'd been carrying around in my mind because the tape was shot inside, so it looked like he had brown hair and brown eyes. And when the woman brought this little boy out, he had blonde hair and blue eyes. And I was so surprised. And then he took the first two fingers of his right hand and put them in his mouth and started sucking on them. And I recognized that gesture from the videotape. And I put my arms up, and she put him in my lap. And I remember being just terrified. I thought, I'm going to drop him. <laughs> I just know it. And I think she thought so, too, because she hovered around me sort of seeing if I was going to drop him. But he, I mean, he seemed to be drawn to you also. Do you, did you feel that? I think as we sat there for a while, and, and actually we saw him for a, qu- a few hours because they allowed us to take him out to the American Medical Center that time. And it was very funny because they said, we'll give you permission to take the child out of the orphanage, but the clothes he's wearing, you won't be allowed to take out. They belong to the orphanage. So we had to bring these little gap clothes for him and dress him. And I remember being very nervous about which way to bend his arm to get it into the sleeve. I'd never dressed a child this age before. But we spent the day with him and going to the American Medical Center, and, and I remember him playing with my hair and touching my face. And while we were there, the doctor told us that he was very small for his age and that he was malnourished. And we knew we'd be leaving him for at least three months. And we, were, we just didn't know what to do. And we said, well, can we leave something at the orphanage for him? And she said, well, you won't want to leave powdered formula because the water is not safe to drink in Moscow, and so you won't want them to mix that up. And you won't want to leave liquid formula because it's so expensive in Russia that someone will probably take it and sell it, and he'll never get any. You'll just have to wait. And I I recall getting on that plane, I think, is the hardest thing that I have ever had to do, knowing that I was leaving him in the orphanage and couldn't come back for months. And then knowing how, you know, the kind of food he couldn't get. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, I had seen it and I saw, you know, all the children seemed very small there. How long did it take uh, from the time you began the adoption process to finally get him? Well, it was um, about four months before we could go back to Moscow. And that's when we thought, we're going to be here for a week, we're going to get him, and we're going to come home. And at the time, you needed 23 signatures on your Russian paperwork in order to complete your adoption, and we had 22. So we thought this would be very easy. But we hadn't counted on the fact that it was 1996, and Russia was in the middle of the, their first democratic election, which meant that anyone who could possibly sign our papers was off in the Urals campaigning with Boris Yeltsin. So we couldn't get the papers signed. We couldn't take him out of the orphanage. All we were allowed to do was visit him every day. And weeks started to go by while we were there in Moscow. We'd go every day. We would feed him his lunch. We would spend a lot of time holding him 
because the children there were not touched very much. He was in a group of about 12 children from about a year to a year and a half old. And they were really only touched when they were picked up to be fed or changed because they only had one caretaker and she just didn't have time. So we spent a lot of time just carrying him around the orphanage and getting to know the other children who were there. Meantime, as the weeks started to go by, um, our visas expired, our airline tickets home expired, and we started to run out of money. So we had gone from the extremely nice Western hotel to the not-so-nice Russian hotel, and eventually had to move into our translator's apartment, which she told us had been in her family since before the revolution. And meantime, the whole country was in turmoil uh, because of the election. The subway that we rode to the orphanage was bombed. There was a car bombing, um, and we actually thought it was the man whose signature we were waiting for. Uh, every day, the Moscow Times, which was the English language newspaper, would have a story about the Kremlin may declare a state of emergency, or we're thinking there may be civil war in Russia. And through all this, we weren't sure we were going to get our son because there was a communist candidate who'd been very outspoken about being anti-American. And he looked as if he might win the election. I mean, he was very close with Yeltsin's numbers. And the rumor had it that if he won, he would stop adoptions. So we were panicked, not sure whether we would be able to get our son. Oh, that must be terrible. What about the uh, uh, qualifications for adoption? I mean, they must have some, as parents, you have to have some qualifications also, don't you? Yes. Um, and part of the things that went into our Russian dossier um, were amazing things that they asked for. We needed things like a letter of good conduct from our local police. And I remember saying to my husband, well, they don't even know us. How are they going to know our conduct is good? And he said, that's probably how. <laughs> and if they know you, they probably don't, it's probably not a good thing. We had to have fingerprints, of course, to make sure we had never been arrested. We had to have medical tests, extensive medical tests, and a lot of times for, for illnesses that we don't even have here. We had to have a, t a TB test. We had to be tested for how much albumin was in our urine. I mean, it was amazing things the doctor found that we had to be tested for. Uh, the government here makes sure you have enough money to raise a child. If you're going to bring a child into this country, they want to make sure that you can afford to have them. So they want those kinds of things. They want to make sure you're an American citizen. Uh, they want to make sure either if you are married, that you are married, and if you've been divorced before you are divorced. So it's quite a process, you know, everything that they ask for. They also in Russia want to see pictures of your, your house. And I remember asking my coordinator, what, what do, why do they want to see pictures of our house and also where we go on vacation and that kind of thing? And she said, I think it's just because they're very interested in how Americans live. You know, I'm really surprised at that. You would think they'd be delighted to have people take the kids because it's such a drain on their economy. Well, there's that, but I think in, in Russia you have to understand that they, their, their whole population is shrinking. Um, the men typically die around 50 because of either too much drinking or smoking or the stress of the lifestyle there. They lose a lot of children because of adoption. In the past about four years, um, Amer Americans have taken roughly, I think, about 6,000 kids out of Russia a year. Yeah, so th we've done a lot of adoptions, and also the Italians take quite a few. So they're losing population. They would love to see Russian families adopt these children. And actually, before a child in Russia can be adopted by a foreigner, they're put in a database for a certain number of months. Our son was in for three months. And the hopes is that during the time the child's in the database, when a foreigner can't adopt them, a Russian family will come forward and take them. Unfortunately, the, in Russia, 
the economy is such that the people can't afford to take the children. So that makes it difficult. There's also a lot of rumors in Russia about why Americans want their children so badly. There have been rumors printed that we take the children to harvest their organs. You know, amazing stories that come out, which is why there's a big push on, on adoptive parents to do their what they call post-placement reports, which are sort of a year later, you send back pictures and things about how the child is doing so that they can see that, yes, these people are taking good care of their children. But you know, you have to think of how we as Americans might feel if we were losing a, that many children every year to another country. You know, be too, I wouldn't like it. No, there's a sense of national pride. So you know, it's yeah. not as clear as you think. You know, I, I went in with that same thought. They'll be so happy we're taking the kids. Yeah. Fortunately, though, everybody wants to come to America. And, yeah. You know, we we have it so good here that I just can't imagine wanting to be adopted elsewhere. Maybe a Parisian. Yes. Right. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't mind that even <laughs> now. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> uh, do you ever wonder about the parents, or do you know who the parents were? Uh, it's interesting. Um, part of the reason I started to write this book is to give my son a history because I had so little history for him. Um, Alex was born in a Moscow hospital, and three days after he was born, his biological mother disappeared. She um, apparently went back to the Ukraine where she said she was from, but she had left a fake name and a fake address. So they couldn't even find her to get her to sign release papers. She didn't even name him. So that the orphanage gave him his name, and because it was still winter when he was born, they took for his last name the Russian word for snow, which is where the title of the book comes from. So I really have nothing. All I know is that he was her third pregnancy, which is in the medical report we got. But we don't know if she had the other children from those other pregnancies and maybe couldn't afford to keep him, or if she didn't even have those children. There's so little information. And Russia, too, is very... Um, closed about adoptions. It's very different than domestic adoptions now where things are open. And I guess in some ways, too, they're, you know, how they're always rewriting history. They give adoptive parents the option to uh, have a new birth certificate, which we have with my husband and I listed as Alex's birth parents. And we had the option to change his birthday if we wanted to, which seemed particularly Russian to me. <laughs> it was very revisionist. <laughs> um, will you tell your son that he was adopted? Yes. In fact, we always tell him. We've told him right from he's, when he's first come home because we never wanted him to feel that this was something that should be hidden or something he should be ashamed of, that it was a secret of any kind. And it's interesting because I think at first I overdid it. Um, I would always say, you know, you're from Russia and, and this, is, this is Russia and this is just like you. And he was about three years old and he came into my office one day and he, I was showing him the guidebook I had taken to Moscow and showing him the pictures. And I said, look, this is a picture of Red Square and this is Moscow. This is where you were born. And he pointed to the people walking in the picture, and he said to me, are they all there to get their children? So I realized I had turned Russia into an entire country of orphan children in his mind. <laughs> I thought perhaps I was going a little too far. <laughs> oh, I'm sure he's going to want at some point. How old is he now? He's just turned six. What? Just turned six. Is that right? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? So he's in school. Yes, he's just started kindergarten in San Francisco. And it's interesting, he's um, in the after school, he's on... Um, in a chess club, and I'm very pleased to say he is playing third graders. So I think this whole chess thing is in his DNA. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think that's exciting. I really do. And of course, I'm sure someday he'll want to go to Moscow and Russia and see where you know his his roots are from. I think so. We talk about it sometimes, and he has expressed an interest. But he's also six, so sometimes 
he gets confused about it, I think. We showed him some videotape of himself in the orphanage. There's quite a lot of tape of it. We pointed him, him out to himself. And, but a day later, he said to me, you know, that was a different baby. Actually, I was in France. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I like France, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know you're donating some of the proceeds from the book to, you want to tell me to whom? Yes. Um, part of the other reason that I wrote the book is that I wanted to encourage other people to adopt. Uh, having spent uh, what turned out to be a month in my son's orphanage, waiting for our papers to be signed, I got to know the other children and I got to see them. I got to see how many wonderful children there are there. And it is very expensive for people to adopt. Our adoption was $25,000. And I would say an average is about $20,000 now to adopt. And I think a lot of people are stopped because of the money. So there are a number of foundations, organizations around that will make either interest-free loans to people or give them outright grants to help them adopt internationally. So I'm donating 10% of the proceeds from this book to foundations like that. Up till now, I have been donating to one called the Des Moines Foundation, which um, was recently in Palo Alto. Uh, I think it's just moved down to San Diego, and they do loans to people. And it's wonderful because we've given money where people will it'll buy the tickets for people to go and get their children, and we've gotten to meet the children as they've come back. Yeah. Well, I think that's wonderful. Yeah. I really, really do. I think that's just super. Now, you know, usually, as you said when we started talking, that when you ha adopt a child, then you become pregnant. But so far, no. No, I haven't become <laughs> pregnant. And right now, I'm very happy being the mother of one child. Yes. So yeah, so yeah you do find out. Well. Yeah, that, that's okay for now, yes. I would think. Uh, I, don't, I don't blame you because mm -hmm. I, I only had one. I wish I had had more, however, but... I'm sure if you're going to go adopt again, it would, I mean, the, the process itself is uh, somewhat discouraging sometimes. It is a bit, but I have to say that I would do it again in a heartbeat to get my son. And if I decided that I wanted a second child, I would not think twice about doing it again. Because, first of all, my experience, in, as I relate in my book, was much more difficult than most people's would be. A lot of it is because we didn't use an agency, an adoption agency. We were sort of forced to go with a coordinator who had showed us the tape, so we were locked into her, and we would have never used her. Um, and I think part of why we had so many problems was through the people that we used, and of course the election, which came at that time. So I know that it would always be easier than the first time I did it. Yeah. And I think also the way people describe labor to me, how once you have your child, you forget all the terrible pain of labor. I think that's sort of how it is with adoption. Once you have your child, you kind of forget about all the, the difficulties of going through to get your child, and you just... You see the outcome, and it's so worth it. No, you're, I think you're right about that. But I think that's just fabulous that you've done that. Uh, I mean, I, I commend you for it. You know, you, I think you have to be a certain type of person, too, to, to do that. As you say, you saw this child, and, and that decided you. But, but just to say, I, I'm going to go out and adopt, I don't think that works. You have to really be kind of into that. You do have to be committed, which is, um, I think, a nice bonus for children who are adopted because they know that their parents really, really wanted them. Um, because it is a commitment. It is one of those things that you are going to have to work at. You're going to have to find the place. You're going to have to find the child. You're going to have to do the paperwork. You're going to have to keep going. And a lot of times it does seem discouraging and you think to yourself, what am I doing? Um, there were times when we were transferring sums of money like $10,000 to um, a Russian man's bank account that you know, we'd never met him. And we're sending, you know, this big 
chunk of money to him, and we were, it was scary. You weren't sure if you were going to get it. But I think also what happens, too, is that lots of times people who go through the same thing I did where they have fertility problems and they want a child very much and they can't have one, I will say that with adoption, you are more likely to get a child than you would by going through a series of in vitro treatments, which only have like a 25% success rate. I mean, the success rate with adoption is very, very high, and um, usually on your first try with adoption. And international, too, um, there are, from what I hear at least, there are less problems getting through with your international adoption. You know, I know many people who started out domestically and had situations where birth mothers changed their minds um, or came back later to get their children, and they've had that happen more than once and then sort of switched over to international adoption, where as far as uncertain as it is, it seems more certain than almost any other option that you have. A lot of, uh, I think, too, in some of the material I read that you were talking about, I, I would say particularly in the Bay Area, a lot of them have adopted children from China yes. and from the Orient rather than from Europe. Yes, and China was the number one country, and they sort of now and again flip-flop with Russia. In the Bay Area, I think adopting from China makes a huge amount of sense. I have friends who have done it because you have a wonderful Chinese culture here. Your child is not going to feel out of place. You know, she'll be in school with other children who are Asian. And actually, in the back of my mind, I think I thought if I was ever going to adopt, I'd probably be adopting a little girl from China. I had always assumed that was going to be it. Um, and so I was quite surprised to find myself the mother of a boy <laughs> and a little boy from Russia. <laughs> so I think it, that's it, it was I really Is there anything else you'd like to say? Um, I think ultimately when I sat down to write this book and I had all my goals of giving my son a history and, and encouraging other people to adopt, what eventually came out of the book, what it ultimately turned out to be, is the story of loving a child and wanting him so desperately that you would travel halfway around the world and risk anything to get him. And when I thought about it being about that, I thought, this is in many ways every mother's story. It's not just an adoptive mother's story. It, it's something that I think pretty much any mother can understand. And so approaching it from that way, I, what I really wanted to write about was what it feels like to adopt. Because when I was looking for, uh, I was in the process and I'm looking for something uh, during that time, I remember tearing apart the bookstore shelves saying, what will tell me what this process is going to feel like? What is the emotional journey here? And all I could find were how to, you know, how to do your paperwork, how to pick an agency, how to tell your child they're adopted, how to raise adopted children. But very little has been written about how it feels to adopt and what that, that process is. And that really, I think, became my goal here and what I tried to accomplish with the book. Well, it's a wonderful book. You ought to go on Larry King. Have you thought of that? I'd love to. Well, <laughs> send it to him. I will. Send it to him. Maybe he can do a, a story on uh, adopting children. Because as I said, you know, I do the other thing, encouraging people to adopt by doing public service announcements. Mm -hmm. Remember to follow the News Vault from KCBS Radio on social media. On Facebook, we're at News Vault Podcast. On Twitter, find us at News Vault SF. On Instagram, we're at News Vault. Until our next episode, you are leaving the News Vault from KCBS Radio. Baseball.
is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app.